If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast. This is the program where we talk about the news of the week and the events of my often bizarre life and where we provide you with a full two-hour at least oasis of honesty and rationality in the desert of insanity and deceit, which is the American media, cultural, and political landscape. My name is John Ziegler. I'm a, I am your host coming at you from a very soggy and continually very cold Southern California on this Oscar day, February 26th, 2017. Speaking of the Oscars... We're going to be talking movies and a whole lot more in hour number two, where our featured guest will be filmmaker, director, writer Cyrus Narasta, who is well-known for a lot of things, but in the political realm, most well-known for having been the writer of that infamous uh, censored by the Clintons ABC docudrama back in 2006 called The Path to 9-11, the two-night miniseries, the best film ever made about 9-11, and he had a film out last year, which unfortunately was not nominated for an Oscar, although it did win a bunch of awards, called The Young Messiah, and I want to talk to him about the movie industry and a whole lot of other things that are going on in the news that are related to that. That's in our number two. This is a big week for what I consider to be the two specialties of this podcast. One is news about the media, and two, in no particular order, one and two are often flipped, news about President Donald Trump, because those two issues are now inextricably linked, maybe forever, and this week was a classic example of that, because so much of the news about the media is about Trump and vice versa. By the way, for those who have maybe never listened to this podcast before, wondering why do I listen to this podcast? Uh, here, here's what we bring to the table no one else does. There is no other podcast done by someone from the conservative political persuasion who knows the game, who doesn't care at all about pleasing anybody else, and has no fear of pissing anyone off. Those are the qualities that make this podcast different. There is no other radio show, podcast, or any program like that of its kind. This is it, the world according to Zig. And because of my interest in both the media and obviously Donald Trump as a conservative who is a critic of Donald Trump. But let's be clear. I want to make this very, very, you know, as, as 
Barack Obama might have said at some point. So let me be clear. Yeah, the, uh, he may have said that once or twice. Let me be clear on Trump. I continue to hope that he is at least moderately successful. I say moderately successful because I truly believe that if he were to somehow become enormously successful, which I don't think is likely, that we would fundamentally change our system of government forever, that we would basically become a monarchy or a dictatorship of some sort. Not, I'm not talking about next week or next year. I'm talking about in the foreseeable future. If he were to be a complete disaster, we would turn into the opposite. Well, maybe the same, only under liberal uh, authoritarian rule because Republicans will never get elected again if he is a complete disaster. We've Conservatives have allowed our total brand to be completely, as was proven by CPAC this week, overrun by Trumpism. There is no conservatism anymore. It's Trumpism. And if Trumpism is seen as a disaster, then the Republican Party and conservatism for the foreseeable future are toast. And I don't want that either. And I'm still hopeful, and I've said many, many times, I say this every week, there are going to be some good things that happen. There are some signs of good things happening. Not as many as the Trump people would like you to believe. Trump's going around telling people that he's done more in the first month than anyone else has done in their whole four years, which is just, you know. It's just flat out ridiculous. It's absurd. There's a lot of smoke. There's a lot of things that seem to be going on with these executive orders, but not a lot of real substance as of yet. And I think we're starting to get to the point a month in where, it's legitimate to ask questions. Okay, um, where is the replacement for Obamacare? Where is the tax reform package? Uh, by the way, um, there's never going to be a, a special prosecutor for Hillary Clinton. There's never going to be mass deportations. There was a lot of Im- immigration-related news this week, which I will get to. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of other things that that never actually happen. That wall is never going to happen the way that, that Donald Trump has described it. But there's been, to me, a lot more talk than action, and the window is starting to close pretty fast. Trump does have, I guess, a pseudo-State of the Union uh, this week, and so the window is still clearly open. But, you know, with a guy who has historically low approval ratings, and even though he has, you know, small majorities in both houses of Congress, time is starting to run out for things to actually occur. So with that as the backdrop, let's talk about what happened this week, and let's begin with the um, very small role that this podcast played in a major story this week, because last week's podcast, our featured guest was comedian, actor, director, producer Larry Wilmore, who's a former golfing buddy of mine here, here in the Los Angeles area, and Larry Wilmore had appeared on Bill Maher's show on HBO with Milo Iannopoulos, or Milo, depending on who you are, what you believe, how you pronounce things. My my wife insists that he be referred to as Milo for some reason, but everybody in the media calls him Milo, and he became a major news story this week because basically Milo's whole career fell apart. And a very, very small part of that was Larry Wilmore telling Milo on Bill Maher's show, He wants to steal all my stuff. No, that's not what he said. That's not even close to what he said. Now, why I... (laughs) I pushed that button. I'm not quite so sure. But how about if we press the correct button like uh, this one? You can go fuck yourself, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was Larry Wilmore. The other was my daughter, Grace. 
<laughs> Not sure how I... This is Grace. He wants to steal all my stuff. Talking about Hillary Clinton. This is Larry Wilmore talking to Milo on Bill Maher. You can go fuck yourself, uh, all right? Yeah. So, so, so Larry Wilmore was on the podcast last week to talk uh, somewhat about the whole Milo episode, although I had booked him way before that ever happened. And he made some more uh, very interesting remarks about Milo. And Mediate, for whom I write a, a column three or four times a week, does a weekly news article on this podcast. So if you go to our website, freespeechbroadcasting.com, you can see the article that they did on Larry's appearance as well as listen to the entire uh, 45, 50 minutes or so, which is definitely worth it. It was a very interesting, entertaining interview that covered a lot of different subjects. But right after that, I mean, literally right after that happened, Milo, much like Icarus, the man in Greek mythology who got too close to the sun and had his wings of wax melt and he fell to the ground, in very short order, uh, Milo uh, got kicked out of CPAC, the the Conservative Political Action Conference, which occurred this week just outside of Washington, D.C. He was supposed to be a featured speaker there. He lost his book deal, and he lost his job as an editor at Breitbart. Now, why did this happen? This happened because there was some old video that was, and by the way, it wasn't that old, but it was about a year or so old, of Milo going on a video podcast of some sort, which, you know, the type of thing that now that he's a star or was a star until this week, he would never even dream of going on. But this happened sometime in 2016. And the subject came up of, I guess you would call it pedophilia or a I think more accurately, the word is a febophilia. A lot of people misuse those words. A febophilia is uh, sex between an adult and a, I guess, for lack of a better term, a teenager, uh, a teenage boy in this situation with a with a male adult. And um, Milo is openly gay, and so on this show, I guess, for lack of a better term, this show, Milo made some statements that indicated that he thought that a 13-year-old boy having sex with an old man or an older man, an adult man, was a good thing, that it was a positive influence in a 13-year-old's life. And that he did make a couple of statements saying, well, you know, I'm not in favor of the law being changed, but as a gay man, and I'm paraphrasing, as a gay man, I think that those relationships can be positive and he even made a really bad joke about which I perceived to be a joke, about how he had learned a sex act from a Catholic priest that he was very thankful for uh, because of his experience in what I referred to and I think is most accurately referred to as a febophilia. Now, I spoke to the guy, a guy who is known on Twitter as Reagan Battalion. I, I spoke to this guy because he's a, a Twitter friend of mine. We, we uh, tweet and retweet each other stuff all the time, and direct message a lot, and he's a guy who's very anti-Trump, but as the name might suggest, a Reagan conservative. And he's the one who last Sunday night, just as we after we released the podcast last week, he started to promote and distribute this old video. And by the way, it's important to point out, this video was there on YouTube in Milo's name. Milo's name is in the headline of the YouTube video. It had about 60,000 views before this story went ape crap crazy. 
So it's not as if it was hidden. It's just not as if somehow this was a massive surprise. This was right out there in the open that Milo had said these things. And then all of a sudden, uh, and it's all because of the speaking engagement at CPAC. See, a lot of times in news stories, there needs to be a pressure point. There needs to be something that's creating urgency. All right? If there's no urgency, a lot of times there's no big punch in the news media. But because Milo Ionopoulos had been given the featured speaking spot at CPAC, one of the nights of, of the conference this week, that I think created urgency. And then on Sunday night, this video kept getting tweeted and retweeted and it went viral. And once you start to hemorrhage in these situations, it's almost impossible to stop it. Once you're in the middle of a firestorm, so CPAC gets all this pressure. You're not going to have a guy who's a pedophile apologist or an ephebophilia apologist speak at CPAC, are you? Of course, my first thought was the featured speaker at CPAC this year is a guy who's on tape saying that it's okay for him to grab pussy because he's a star. So I, it's really kind of hard for me to get all all uh, wrapped up in the, oh my gosh, we can't possibly have someone who said that on tape speak at CPAC. Wait a minute. <laughs> Who's your president of the United States and your featured speaker? It's Donald Trump. But I digress. So, you know, once CPAC bails, uh, then the book publisher has all the cover in the world they need to bail because they were already getting pressure because he's a very controversial conservative, Milo is, I guess you call him, conservative, libertarian, whatever. And and then once that happens, now Breitbart is under enormous pressure to bail on him as well. Now, supposedly it was his own decision to resign, but we all know how that works. The reality is uh, Breitbart wasn't going to stay by him anymore, so I don't know what happens to Milo now. I mean, Milo, (laughs) I use the Icarus metaphor because I think it's a good one. He basically got too big for his own britches. He overpunted his coverage, whatever, you know, whatever cliche you want to use, because had he remained as a nominal conservative celebrity, star, whatever you want to call him, no one would have cared about this video of him saying this about a febophilia. But because he went on Bill Maher, and that got elevated because of the the feud with Larry Mil- Wilmore, and all the timing of this was kind of a perfect storm to where Milo's career is now in shambles. Now, normally, I would say that a guy like Milo could recover because he's well enough known, and he's a talent. He's a smart, talented guy. Now, I think he's an actor. I wrote a column about him that you can check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com about all of this and how it went down, the real story behind it, and what I think it really means. I'm not a fan of him. I think he's and he's the basically the gay Ann Coulter. I know that a lot of people have used that comparison, but he's an actor. He he's playing a part. He's playing the part of the flamboyantly gay, flame-throwing conservative. And that worked for him. But then when he got too big, people started to care about his past. In a, in a way, although certainly not the get-too-big-too-fast part is not r- relatable. But this felt a lot like the whole Brian Williams situation. You know, where all of a sudden, wait a minute, we, we've known this about Brian Williams making up shit about the past for a long time. Why now? Why, why all of a sudden are these things that we ignored in the past suddenly a big deal? 
Well, that's kind of what happened with Milo. And normally I would say that a guy that reached that level of minor celebrity would still be able to maintain a career if he goes away for a while and then comes back. But I don't know what his audience is at this point. I mean, Breitbart has, has dumped him. I realize conservatism has basically been obliterated in the era of Trump, but you're still not going to find, well, he has his fan base. You're not going to find a large conservative audience or a place that has is willing to give him a platform. I mean, Fox News is not going to hire him. I, I doubt even one of the minor conservative networks like Newsmax or One American News or something like that or I doubt, who knows with Glenn Beck? Anything's possible with Glenn, but I, I doubt Glenn Beck would hire him. I mean, who knows? Uh, but but the reality is it doesn't seem to be a natural place for him to fall. If he was a liberal, there would be. See, that's I get back to this all the time about why the liberal and conservative medias are so different. Because on the left, there is an embarrassment of riches. On the right, there is an enormous scarcity. And on the because of that scarcity on the right, it causes people to do everything messed up things because you're constantly having to do things that are crazy in order to get attention so that you can keep your seat at the table and you can live off the scraps on that table. On the left, there's no real need to do that. (laughs) And if you fail on the left, they've got a safety net. There's always something you can do on the left. Someone can hire you. If you would, if Milo, and you know what, that might end up being where Milo goes. Milo may turn into a lefty, I, although he's kind of trapped on that one, too, because he was so far out there on the right. But that would be the only way I could see him really, at least in the short run, surviving this. Ironically, part of his problem is normally as a flamboyantly gay man who is an abuse victim himself, at least according to his own story, the left would protect that person. That gives you politically correct protection. You know, PC protection, as I always like to talk, that's not, you know, that's close to the top of the pyramid of PC protection as being an openly gay man who's a sex abuse victim. But when you're a Trump-supporting conservative, that gets erased. You lose your, your, your shield is gone. You have no protection. And Milo lost all that protection. And that's why uh, he had what happened to him occur because his support for Trump just created further venom on the left to bring him down. And that's another important ingredient as to what occurred here. One other point on Milo, and I'm the only guy, you know, who would even think to make this point, but I think it's an important one. I actually think that inadvertently that tape of Milo about pedophilia or febophilia gives us a remarkably important insight into what really happened in the bulk of the Catholic Church scandal. I grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic grade school. I went to Catholic high school with priests. I went to Catholic college, although not really. Georgetown University is allegedly Catholic, but not really anymore, though we did have priests. The point here is that I I am well acquainted with the Catholic culture, and it has always been my belief. I'm talking about the core of that scandal that the core of that scandal was gay priests realizing that teenage, young teenage boys were on the cusp of being homosexual and that they would be open to this kind of advancement or exploration in the realm of sex 
and that this was the essence of the abuse. And the reason why I've always felt this way is, one, because I've run into a lot of gay priests. That's number one. There's a lot, there, is a, there is no question in my mind that the percentage of homosexuals within the priesthood is far greater than the general population. Why is that? Well, because priests have to be celibate. So you're getting from a you're you're drawing from a pool of people who have to just have to openly say that they're never going to have they're never going to get married and they're never going to have straight sex their whole lives. Well, I'm sorry, but especially in the in the 70s, 80s and 90s when homosexuality was was still something you didn't talk about publicly, there's a far greater likelihood that that person's going to go into the priesthood because it's a tremendous cover for them. It's why they don't get married. I can't get married because I'm a priest. No, it's actually because you're gay and you don't want to get married. And so, uh, and, and the other thing, and this relates to a story that I've talked forever and ever about and will continue to talk about it because my life has been devoted to it most of the last five years, the whole Penn State Sandusky thing one and a lot of people did relate what Milo said to Penn State, which I just found to be it's just flat out ridiculous. Because here's the thing: nobody in that story is gay. Nobody, not one of Jerry's accusers is gay. Not one. Not even close. Jerry's not gay. Jerry is married. I don't even think Jerry's sexual at all. So my whole thing has always been: um, Have you met a 12, 13, 14 year old boy? Who's heterosexual? Have you ever, have you ever met that person? Heterosexual, say 13, 14 year old boy in, in the modern era. Chances of a 13, 14 physically fit heterosexual boy engaging in sex with an old man without drugs, without alcohol, without being paid, without being physically abused, beaten up, without any of that. And continuing to engage in that behavior, uh, zero. Zero chance, zero. Never fighting back, never telling anybody about it, nothing. However, Milo points out that here he was as a blossoming, if you will, gay young man who obviously a Catholic priest would look at and go, huh, he might be interested. He might be open to this because very few, very few of these Catholic church cases involve what I'm talking about where now some do, but not the bulk of them do not. So that's a, that's an important aside to the Milo story that no one else is going to mention because it's incredibly politically incorrect. And it's one of those things where, we, you know, we best not look at this because, it makes too much damn sense, and it might upset people. But that's the reality of it. And, you know, in watching Milo's press conference, I actually think he was telling the truth. I don't think he really believes that 13-year-old boys having sex with an older man is a good thing. I think that was shtick. But here's the deal. When you're an actor, when you're playing a part like Milo was, it's easy to forget what's your real persona and what's your fake persona. And that's when you get in trouble. And eventually, he got hung by it. And in a weird way, it's the right outcome because he's a fraud. He got exposed as a fraud. To me, 
I think his greatest sin is being an actor when most people are going to think it's because he was supporting a pedophilia or a febophilia. So as the rock band Green Day once wrote, it's something unpredictable, yet in the end is right. I hope you had the time of your life, Milo, because that's that that might be where you are for a while. So again, check out my column at freespeechbroadcasting.com on that. I wrote another column about what a fraud CPAC in general is. CPAC occurred this week, and uh, it's an event that uh, I have great disdain for. Why? Uh, well, number of reasons. I, w- I spoke at CPAC for uh, several years in the late 2000s, 2007, 2008, 2009. I was actually a co-sponsor of CPAC. Uh, because of my movie, Media Malpractice, how Obama got elected, which meant that I was part of the whole planning process. See, when you give them enough money, they make you feel like you're important and you sit on the, in on the meetings of who's going to get to speak and all that. And I, I was thoroughly disgusted at the end of it because maybe I came into it naive, thinking this was really about the cause of conservatism. No, it's not. It's, it's a trade show. And all it is is about making money and helping your buddies continue to be forces within the movement. It's about expanding celebrity within the movement. That's what it is. doesn't matter whether or not the people being promoted are good or bad for conservatism. And to me, and I wrote about this, I started writing about this pretty uh, emphatically in 2012. Ironically, because in 2011, CPAC, allowed Donald Trump to speak. And I was upset about this back in 2012, which is, I think, an important data point in the timeline here. This is not something that I've been, you know, I'm not a Johnny-come-lately to the, uh uh-oh, this guy Trump is going to be trouble uh, person, uh, bandwagon. Well, no, there's no bandwagon. It's like 18 of us left. But the, the point here is that in 2011, CPAC sold... And I'm not using that term lightly, and it's I'm not it's not hyperbole. They've effectively acknowledged this. They sold a prime speaking spot for fifty thousand dollars to Donald Trump in 2011. They did the same in 2013. This was a critical domino in Donald Trump creating his coup d'état of the Republican Party and becoming president of the United States. Critical because if. CPAC does not sell out, literally, to Donald Trump in 2011. Here's what follows. Without the speech at CPAC, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, like a month later, maybe two months later that year, on what you might consider to be the most historic day since 9-11. No one ever talks about this, but two enormous things happened on the same day the night of that White House Correspondents' Dinner in 2011. One, we captured Osama bin Laden. Two, Donald Trump gets mocked at the dinner by Barack Obama. Now, why did Obama bother to mock him? Well, because he had just spoken at CPAC and was thinking about running for president. That was the whole premise. Well, most people believe that Obama mocking Trump in 2011 is why Trump decides eventually to run for president. He figured he couldn't make it happen in 2012, but that's it's the, this is when the seeds get planted. And without the speech at CPAC, 
Trump has no street cred within the conservative movement at all because he's a liberal. So the CPAC speech leads to the Obama diss, which, by the way, gives him even more street cred because the greatest thing that can happen to you as a conservative is for Barack Obama to call you out by name in a high-profile event. So now 25% of the conservative base thinks Trump's cool. CPAC sells out again in 2013. Now, everywhere Trump goes in the media. Oh, oh, by the way, another data point here. Without all this, Trump doesn't force Romney to accept publicly his endorsement in 2012. So all these data points are connected. They're dominoes. CPAC, Obama's diss at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Romney accepting Trump's endorsement, giving him further credibility. CPAC again selling out in 2013. Without all these things happening, when Donald Trump decides to run for president in 2015, he's laughed at. He's laughed at by everybody, not just the elite. He's at 2% in the polls, doesn't get any traction, doesn't get any media coverage, and he goes away like the bad virus that he is. That's what would have happened, but CPAC changed all that. Interestingly, last year, Donald Trump, during the Republican primaries, when he didn't need CPAC anymore because he was the front runner, he bailed on CPAC because he was afraid of answering questions. CPAC actually sent out a tweet rather disparaging of Donald Trump, saying that conservatives should take this as a clear message of who Donald Trump is. This is a year ago. <laughs> this year, the entirety of CPAC was devoted to Donald Trump, not just his speech. No, not just his speech, but the entire program. All the speakers were Trumpsters. There wasn't, I mean, it was, it was um, Stalinistic. I mean, it was as if anything, nary should be heard a, a discouraging word. Any dissent was not to be tolerated. There wasn't even like a panel. You would think there would be a panel. Conservatism in the era of Trumpism. Yeah, or Joe, something respectful like, hey, what happened to conservatism? After all, this is CPAC, the Conservative Action Political Conference. Uh, or, yeah, is that what? Conservative Political Action Conference. Right, CPAC. So anyway, the point here is that any dissent against Trump is not to be tolerated. And this is the same organization that just last year <laughs> was actually pretty critical of Trump. Trump finished a week third in their straw poll behind Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. Got like 15%. And now a year later, because he's president, we have to pretend that he is conservative. He is conservatism. It's really remarkable. And any doubt, CPAC this year ended any doubt that conservatism for most people, I'm not going to say all, but for definitely a majority, a majority of Republicans and a majority of people calling them conservatives, themselves conservatives, there's no doubt after CPAC that for years and years and years, all those principles were bullshit. Those principles meant nothing. Those principles were just, hey, that's what my team is saying at the time. I'm wearing... These colors, because that's our team uniform. This year, we changed the team uniform. 
Our colors used to be red, white, and blue. Now they're more like the Russian flag. By the way, the Russian flag was given out at CPAC. Somebody had a brilliant stunt. This was really good. Somebody before Trump's speech handed out little Russian flags with the name Trump on them. And from what I could tell, I was not there. And sometimes it's hard to tell from social media, but it appeared as if a lot of Trump fans started waving the Russian flags with Trump's name on them before somebody at CPAC realized this is a really bad visual. Let's confiscate these flags. But the point here is what we did this year was we changed our team colors. And everybody um, has either thrown out the old jerseys or they put them in the back of the closet. Uh, you know, those Reagan jerseys, even the Bush jerseys, they're, they're gone. No, no, no. We are all wearing Trump jerseys with different colors. So it was all bullshit in the past, which is depressing, although all, not all that surprising. Not all that surprising based upon everything else I've seen. I mean, we're living in strange times, folks. We're living in an era where not only is Donald Trump president, but uh, Bruce Jenner is now a girl, even though he still has a penis. Uh, you know, we got fat chicks dominating the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Tiger Woods can't even play golf. Howie can't even hold a press conference. Uh, I mean, we are living in fucked up times. So the idea that conservatism was all a big fraud and all a big farce and that nobody really believed in all that stuff is depressing, but not that surprising. So check out my column at freespeechbroadcasting.com about uh, the fraud that is CPAC and how they are directly responsible for the coup d'etat that Donald Trump pulled off. One other column I wrote this week for Mediate is about James O'Keefe, who was part of CPAC. James O'Keefe is the guy who has become very well known for these sting operations against liberal organizations, some of them very successful, some of them not so successful, all of them controversial. Uh, The guy, um, to me... Uh, you know, I like that he exists. Uh, you know, he is um, was the one-time protege, I guess you will, of my old friend, the late Andrew Breitbart. And, you know, I think that some of O'Keefe's tactics are questionable, and I'm somebody who's all for pushing the envelope when it comes to the truth. So I got no problem with pushing the envelope. But there's a, even there's certain lines even I won't cross, and occasionally O'Keefe does. And it's blown up in his face a few times. But I'll give him this. You know, he gets results on occasion. And, um, you know, there's no doubt that he gets media coverage because mostly because Matt Drudge loves him. I mean, Matt Drudge is constantly posting his stuff even when it's not all that great. Well, this week he teased that he was going to bring down CNN. And I'm only slightly exaggerating. He teased that he had over 100 hours of audio that was recorded from inside the CNN newsroom that was going to be scandalous. And he started the hashtag CNN leaks, kind of like WikiLeaks, get it? You know, that he was going to he was going to drip 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 due to CNN. Gee, I wonder why he picked CNN. Could it be that the king Donald Trump has a thing against CNN and therefore he wants to please the king? That, that's my guess, but the reality is he was going to do to CNN what WikiLeaks did to Hillary Clinton with a drip, 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 and there was all this anticipation. And I went on Twitter and I said, look, um, I know this, this game. I've played this game. 
I'm paraphrasing what I said, but I mean, I, I and I used to tell this to Andrew Breitbart too. I could tell whenever Andrew Breitbart was overhyping something because I knew Andrew very well. Because if you have something great and you have the ability to get it out there, and there's no doubt that in the era of Trump, a James O'Keefe has the ability to get a legitimate story out there way more than ever before. Why? Well, because the conservative media is now taken more seriously. Breitbart is basically made a president. Matt Drudge, the same thing. Fox News. And if you're if you if you are doing something pro-Trump, especially on one of his pet issues, like how much he hates CNN, you're gonna get coverage, especially if it's remotely legitimate. So if you have those two things, if you have something great and you have a legitimate ability to get the story out there so that it has enough oxygen to live in on live on its own if it deserves to live on its own, there's no need to pre-hype it. None. Let me tell you when there is a need to pre-hype it. When what you have sucks and you need to create enough buzz so that you can hold a press conference and people will show up and feel obligated to report what they saw or got because they showed up to your press conference, more like a conservative media circle jerk in a hotel room at at CPAC. But that's what O'Keefe did this week. But the reality is, if you have something great, there's no real need to overhype. And I predicted that his fans were going to be very disappointed. And boy, was I right. Uh, they were. This was even a bigger joke than I thought it was going to be. He had nothing. In fact, he had so little, he laughably said, I need help in going through these tapes. Now, wait a minute. So why are you holding a press conference if you haven't gone through all the tapes? And by the way, you have some audio clips you're releasing. They're all pretty innocuous, except brace for this, folks. A mid-level staffer at CNN hates Fox News. I know that's stunning. Hold on to your seats. That's going to I'm sure CNN will be off the air soon with that revelation. Uh, But that was basically the biggest thing that he had. So why, if you really haven't gone through all the tapes because you don't have the manpower, not that 119 hours isn't that much. Uh, I'm really, you know, give give, uh, three people the 30 hours or 40 hours each and you're good. But um, the point here is I don't really believe he hasn't gone through all of it, but why would you release it if you hadn't? Why, why would you, why would you not wait? You might have a real bombshell. Now you've already blown the story. And he also offered $10,000 for any information uh, proving media malfeasance, which I thought was pretty funny for a couple of reasons. One, because I'm like, uh, the media just elected Donald Trump president. Where can I collect? All right, there, there's, your, there's your evidence of media malfeasance right there, James. But, but more importantly than that, I found this funny because the, the, the denomination, $10,000, is something that and I, I realize that a lot of uh, ego maniacal talk show hosts thinks everything think everything's about them. You know, everything, every idea that they've ever said uh, somehow gets copied, and I, I think that's bullcrap. But in this particular case, there's a direct line between me starting the ten thousand uh, dollar uh, offer and uh, Andrew Breitbart, my 
old ex now deceased buddy doing exactly the same thing and then O'Keefe doing the exactly the same thing. So it's been passed down from me. I first did it with Keith Oberman back in like 2009. I offered him Actually, you know what? I, I think the first time I did it was ten thousand. Then I offered him a hundred. I offered Keith Oberman a hundred thousand dollars to debate me on live television about uh, Sarah Palin and my movie Media Malpractice. But the, then Andrew Breitbart did exactly the same thing right after that, which I, I kidded him about. And now you know ten thousand dollars doesn't quite do the same thing that it used to. But the ten thousand dollar number is funny because that's also the number that Mitt Romney got ridiculed for in 2012. If you have a really good memory, during one of the first Republican primary debates, uh, I think it was Newt Gingrich or it might have been Rick Perry, but M- Mitt Romney leaned over. He was being challenged on something, and Romney said, I'll bet you $10,000 that's not true. And everybody went, oh, my God, oh, $10,000. He's he's showing how rich he is. This is this is outrageous. He'll never be able to to be able to relate to the average common man. 4 years later, Donald Trump is our president by the way. But Mitt Romney gets raked over the coals because he picks $10,000. My whole point on that was, wait a minute. If he goes less, you got to you got to do even denominations. If he goes a thousand, people are going to go. Well, he doesn't care very much. No one, Mitt Romney's got ten thousand dollars in his in his uh, in, in his cushions on his sofa. I mean, so who cares about a thousand dollars? So that's not enough. A hundred thousand wouldn't be seen as real, I guess. I don't know. I thought ten thousand was the perfect denomination, but he got he got killed for it. And to me, that's the. That is the perfect example of the double standard between the way Mitt Romney was treated and the way that Donald Trump had been treated. Of course, the irony is that Romney is probably way, way, way richer in real dollars than Donald Trump, but perception is reality. So check out my column on James Keith and his stunt and how it's just another example of how the conservative media is a racket. And this is how we got Donald Trump, folks. If we had a credible media that really cared about the truth and the cause, Donald Trump would never have been able to become the Republican presidential nominee. But we don't. It's a racket. He needs attention to get money donated to his organization. That's what this is about. Attention equals money, credibility, so that he can do it again the next time, even though this was all bull crap. So check that out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. One other thing on James O'Keefe, by the way. I've mentioned this on the old uh, syndicated Sunday night radio show, but this is worth retelling. Just to give you an indication of what a fraud and how weird and frankly mentally ill a lot of the pro-Trump conservative, quote-unquote, conservative media stars are. You know, uh, James O'Keefe is very conspiratorial, and he likes to imply that he's going to be taken out by his enemies. And in fact, during the 2012, uh, 2016 presidential campaign, when he was also overhyping some stuff that he had that wasn't all that great, he um, tweeted that he was already getting threats from the left, that he was fearful for his life and in fact had created, 
<laughs> he had created like a, a kill switch or something. I don't know what he called. I think he called it. Might have called it a kill switch. But something to the effect of, if anything happens to me, the release will still happen. Now, anybody with half a brain knows this is absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous to begin with. But I happen to know the real story because I know what provoked O'Keefe to react that way and to claim that his life was being threatened. See, a guy, a guy by the name of Justin, emailed me and said, you're not going to believe this, but I got James O'Keefe's cell phone number and I texted him some rather innocuous, really basically just joking with him about a traffic ticket he got a couple of years ago saying that I was going to use this to bring him down. And it was immediately after that that O'Keefe started to tweet about this threat that he was getting that he thought his life might be in danger. And the guy sent me the texts. I texted the number myself and got the exact same response from O'Keefe's cell phone number. So this checked out 100%. In fact, when O'Keefe did this whole CNN leaks thing, this, this Justin kid texted him again, taunting him to see what would happen. And O'Keefe still thought it was real and still thought, oh my, you know, basically reacted in a way that indicated that he thought this was legitimate and that there was a real organized effort to try to bring him down. This is how far it got. Speaking of conspiratorial whack jobs, Alex Jones, and to me, the idea that Donald Trump is a buddy of Alex Jones and supposedly takes his counsel and calls him is the number of all the reasons why Donald Trump should not be president. That's number one. Cause Alex Jones is an insane person. He's insane. He's the conspiratorial Infowars talk show host. And the Democrats made a great commercial about Alex Jones during the campaign, which I thought could have destroyed Donald Trump, and it went nowhere. They didn't put any money behind it, that connecting Alex Jones to Donald Trump and vice versa. Well, here was Alex Jones on the same day that I'm talking about with regard to the text messages that this guy Justin sent as a joke to James O'Keefe, and O'Keefe sent out word that he was being targeted for death. Here was what Alex Jones said on his show about about uh, James O'Keefe. James O'Keefe is in danger. They, they, okay, they're trying to get him right now. He's in the air. <laughs> All because some kid decides to pull a prank on James O'Keefe via text message. And Alex Jones, counselor to the president. James O'Keefe is in danger. They, they, okay, they're trying to get him right now. He's in the air. <laughs> And these are the people, these are the people that our president takes seriously and takes counsel from. We're so fucked. We are so fucked. But this is the world we live in. Now, there's some other news involving the news media and uh, Donald Trump uh, this week that I want to go through fairly quickly. The uh, White House on Friday apparently barred some liberal outlets from the White House press gaggle. And I think the uh, L.A. Times, the New York Times, uh, BuzzFeed, uh, you know, some of the uh, CNN, some of the other, you know, more liberal anti-Trump uh, news organizations uh, were banned. And there was a lot of uh, so-called pearl clutching. You know what pearl clutching? Oh, oh, 
uh, in the news media. And look, I'm as out there as anybody when it comes to uh, being anti-Trump, but um, I'm I'm actually about 80-20 against the media reaction here. And there's a reason why it's not 100%, which I'll explain in a second. But this is a situation where if the exact same thing had occurred, and you could argue that it did under the Obama administration, this would be a complete non-story. This is just the kind of thing that happens from time to time, partially because of space restrictions. So the media was incredibly overreactive and narcissistic, which they always are. I mean, you can you can count on the news media almost universally 100%. They're going to overreact and they're going to be narcissistic. So that's what they did in this particular story. The 20%, though, comes from this. When you call the news media the enemy of the American people, which Trump had done just literally hours before at CPAC and had done earlier that week, and you refer to the news media as the opposition party, I'm sorry, but it's understandable that they're paranoid. You don't get the benefit of the doubt as to what your intent is when you bar outlets, all of whom clearly have anti-Trump bents from a White House press gaggle. So there's a reason why, yes, they're paranoid, but there's a reason why they're paranoid. They have good reason to be. Trump can't stop talking about how they're the enemy of the people, they're fake news, blah, 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 blah. So I'm sorry, under normal circumstances, the media wouldn't have a leg to stand on here. In Trump world, I kind of get it. Still overreactive, still narcissistic, but you lose the benefit of the doubt when you're the Trump administration, when you've handled the news media as you have. All related to this, directly related, is that Donald Trump has bailed from the White House Correspondents' Dinner that I referred to as being so critical in 2011. And to me, this is a real insight into who Donald Trump is. What a wuss. What a bully. You know, the classic bully that can't take a punch. Here he does nothing, virtually nothing all day, but rip the media, does it constantly. Did it again today on Twitter, by the way. And... And yet here at this event, which has always been supposed to be fun and good natured and the press and the president ribbing each other, the reality is he's not even going to show up. Of course, his fans think that somehow this is a big F you to the media. Wait a minute. He's t- he's this is an F you to the media by running away and hiding. How is that an F you? I thought he was the big tough guy. This guy, he's a wimp. He and to me, he's a fraud. He can he has no sense of humor either. Yes, he can be humorous at times, but he has no ability to be self-deprecating. He has no ability to take a personal joke. And politically, it's probably smart for him not to go. I mean, if I was advising him and all I cared about was how he was perceived, I would never let him go near the White House Correspondents' Dinner because he might have a complete meltdown because he's not able to take it. But he's president of the United States. He ought to be able to handle this, especially when he's giving it as much as he's giving it. When you give it that much and you're not willing to even show up at the event where you might have to take it, I'm sorry. That, to me, indicates a lot about the guy. Now, obviously, 
the underlying biggest story of the entire Trump administration so far that keeps bubbling just beneath the surface and sometimes bubbling above the surface is the issue of Trump's ties with Russia. And the biggest story related to that this week is that the White House chief of staff, Rince Priebus, apparently asked the FBI and members of some key members of the Senate to tap down stories of connections and contacts between the Russian government and the Trump campaign during the election cycle. Now, I have to say, I again think that there is a scenario quite plausible where the news media overreacted a little bit to this because you can interpret what Priebus did, and there's no question that what Priebus did was wrong ethically. But I'm talking about as far as what it indicates regarding the ties between Trump and Russia. So there's no doubt what Priebus did was inappropriate. How, how inappropriate or potentially violation of ethics, rules, laws, what have you, I don't know. But, but even Chris Christie today on one of the talk shows indicated that Priebus should not have done that. Because that's obviously a, a conflict. When you have the executive branch saying, hey, FBI, can you come out and give us one of those letters like you know, like you did for us during the campaign with Hillary? Can you do that saying that uh, the, these stories are overblown about connections between Russia and Trump during the election campaign? And they refused. Now, the news media, because they see Trump through a prism, which is understandable but not yet proven, they look at this and they go, aha, the FBI refused. This must mean the story is real. No, not necessarily. In fact, I think you can argue, based upon what we currently know, that it was the opposite. The previous would not have asked them to do that unless he got some indication that that's what the FBI thought. Because otherwise, I think we would have seen greater outrage and umbrage from the intelligence community. This feels, again, we might learn new information, but right now this feels like Previous asked inappropriately for them to do something that they thought was the truth. There's no indication he was telling them to lie. And that's a key distinction. So hopefully that's the case. But there's just so much smoke here with regard to Trump and Russia that I'm not sure what to make of it anymore. I'll tell you what I do know for sure. We can figure out just how large the Trump cult is, and it is a cult, based upon polling data regarding Vladimir Putin and Russia. This week, a poll came out where Republican favorability of Vladimir Putin, in other words, Putin's favorability among Republicans, has increased since just before Trump began his presidential campaign. So this is almost a perfect, perfect proof of the size of Trump's cult. The favorability of Republicans of Vladimir Putin has increased 20 points since Trump started to run for president. It's now at 32%. 32% of Republicans have a favorable view of Vladimir Putin. Now, in that year and a half, almost two years, whatever it is, since the poll, there is no logical reason for a Republican to have a more favorable opinion of Vladimir Putin, except the fact that our leader, Donald Trump, 
also appears to have a favorable opinion of Vladimir Putin. That's the only logical explanation. Therefore, it is the perfect proof that Trump's cult is at least 20% of the Republican Party. 20% of the Republican Party are mind-numbed cult members. They are true blue, 100% Scientology-like cult members of the cult of Trumpism. 20%. You could argue it's larger than that because clearly some of the original 12% who liked Putin might also be part of the cult. So let's, let's say that half of the original Putin likers among Republicans are also Trump cult members. That would mean that the, the portion of the Republican Party in the general population that is what I would refer to as a Trump cult member would be right around 25, 26%, which I think is pretty accurate. That would be, that would be my perception. I've always felt about a quarter of the Republican Party completely bat crap crazy, conspiracy-minded nut jobs who are now part of the Donald Trump cult. Now, as far as trying to figure out what their real story is with Trump and Russia, I get more confused. I'm at the point now where we actually have too much. We have too much information, but not enough facts, if that makes any sense, to be able to come to a logical conclusion. There's so much damn smoke. I keep thinking, all right, there's got to be something to this. On the other hand, it's so freaking insane I think there's no way this is real. Except I keep going back to one thing. What's the one thing we know for sure? For absolute sure, we know how Donald Trump has reacted to all of these stories. And just today on Sunday morning, out of nowhere, for no apparent reason, except for the fact that there was some polling data indicating that the the public, as well as a lot of Republicans are concerned about these stories. This is a different poll than the one I just referred to. But a, a brand new poll just out a couple days ago indicated that the public does not like and is quite concerned about these ties between Russia and Trump. So that might have been what provoked this particular tweet from Donald Trump. Russia talk is fake news, capitals, all capitals, so therefore you know it's true, right? Because no one on Twitter has ever used capitals unless it was 100% true. Russia talk is fake news put out by the Dems and played up by the media in order to mask the big election defeat and the illegal leaks. Now, that's that's amazing, that tweet. I mean, I mean Trump, at least two or three times a week, tweets out something that's... Uh, it's just flat out ridiculous. But this one is both fascinating and insane. And to me, this is in the category of dost thou protest too much? Because why, why, if this was all fake, why would you care so much? But more importantly, your argument is so convoluted, so messed up, so nonsensical. Let's go through this. Russia talk is fake news put out by the Dems. No, no. The Dems have not really been behind this. They have been 
hope, which is, I think, bizarre. It's it's maybe one of Trump's greatest accomplishments that he's gotten the Democratic Party to now come out and be anti-Russia and anti-Vladimir Putin. So congratulations to Donald Trump for that. They have been absolutely hoping that these stories gain traction because they see political advantage in it. But these stories have not come from Democrats. They've come from our own intelligence agencies. They've come from CNN, which I know he refers to as the Clinton News Network, which at times it has been, but other news organizations as well. They've never, to my understanding or my belief, uh, been debunked at all. He never talks specific, by the way. Why does Donald Trump, when he refers to fake news, never talks specifics? It's always, ah, fake news, fake news, fake news, because he doesn't have specifics. He doesn't want to talk specifics. But this is not being put out by the Democrats. Yes, it's being played up by the media, but wait a minute. Let's look at his motive. In order to mask the big election defeat, I will insist for the 101st time, this was not a big election victory for Donald Trump. He lost the Electoral College vote by 3 million votes. He got 46%, which is what I always thought was going to be his top line. I never thought he could get more than 46% of the popular vote, and I was right about that. It's just that for the first time in history, that didn't translate to the Electoral College. He won three states he had no business winning, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, by incredibly small margins. If he doesn't do that, he's not president. So this was not a big election victory for him. But the idea that this, the Russian news is to mask the big election defeat. Okay, I guess there's some logic to that in that it's being the Russians are being blamed by some, including Democrats, for why Trump won. But that's old news. There's a whole bunch of new news after the election, including, by the way, can we not forget already the resignation of his national security advisor, Mike Flynn, because of a conference, because of a uh, phone call with the Russian ambassador talking about sanctions being reduced or gotten rid of once Trump was president because of the fact that they had meddled in our election? I mean, are we really forgetting about Mike Flynn already? It's a rather important data point here. But the media is not playing them up to mask Hillary's big election defeat or even the illegal leaks. The illegal leaks part of this makes no freaking sense because what are the leaks about? The leaks are about the Russian ties and the Russian issue and the Mike Flynn phone call. So you got the court, the cart behind the horse here, in front of the horse here. That makes no sense. And to me, you know, you can make no sense because you're an idiot, which Trump may be, or you can make no sense because you have no argument and you're just trying to dust up, you know, create as much dust as possible, as much confusion, muddy the waters as much as possible because you need your cult to be protected. And I have to tell you, that's the scenario here that makes most sense to me. This whole fake news thing is about protecting his cult from negative information discrediting the news media so that that percentage of his cult, now whatever that percentage is, his base, his hardcore base of support, which if you take the overall population is probably in the 25 to 35% range, somewhere in that, in, in that mold. He wants to protect them from, like a cult, having any negative information and discredit anybody who makes any allegation against him. And the fact that he's devoting so much time, so much effort consistently on this indicates to me he's worried. 
That's a guy who is worried. That's a guy who has reason to worry. And he's the one who would know more than anybody else. So I keep going back to if it wasn't for Donald Trump's reaction to the whole Russian thing, I might think it's mostly bullcrap, mostly the media exaggerating, you know, a whole lot of smoke and not a lot of fire. But I can't figure out a scenario as to why Trump's or how Trump's reaction to it, including the Bill O'Reilly Super Bowl interview, make any damn sense whatsoever. Because from a purely political standpoint, now that this has become such a big issue, the politician would go out of his way not to say anything nice about Putin. And instead, Trump goes the other direction. How does that make any sense? Again, either he's nuts, which isn't a good thing, or he's compromised in some way. Maybe there's another scenario, but it's becoming more and more difficult to figure out that what that is. Next week on the podcast, we're going to hopefully get further and deeper into this because we're going to have a guy by the name of Tom Nichols, who's got a big presence on Twitter as an anti-Trump conservative who's done a lot of study on this whole uh, Russian issue. He's got a new book out called The Death of Expertise. So Tom Nichols will be joining us next week on the podcast, and we're looking forward to that. But, you know, I despise the news media as much as anybody on the planet. I'm well on record about that. I've done three documentary films blasting the way the news media has handled certain major stories. You know, one of them is called Media Malpractice. I've devoted most of my life and career to criticizing the news media. And to see Donald Trump go way overboard with this whole fake news thing, all for his own selfish purposes, has been, even for me, been rather depressing. And, you know, frankly, the media is in a tough spot on this Russia issue because this story is either the story of our time that Russia effectively elected their own president of the United States who they have compromised, or it's much ado about nothing. There's almost nothing in between. (laughs) And so what do they do? I don't know what you do because it's also a story that's almost impossible to prove because so much of it is coming from intelligence agencies where you're forced to use anonymous sources. And now, by the way, Trump wants to ban anonymous sources, which how rich is this? This is the guy who went on Twitter claiming he had very credible sources telling him that the uh, that uh, uh, President Obama's birth certificate was a fraud, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's, the, that's the hilarious part of this whole thing. That he goes on Twitter, says that President Trump's, uh, Trump, uh, that President Obama's birth certificate is a fraud, and he's got sources to tell him that. That was a lie. And here's the guy who's against anonymous sources, which, by the way, his own administration is using anonymous sources. So Trump's a complete hypocrite on this. And it appears to me as if his administration is planting false stories in order to make the media look bad. They're doing this on purpose. They're like with you know Kellyanne Conway being sidelined by the media. That was a story this week, and then all of a sudden she was booked on Fox that night. They're going, ha, 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 ha. Well, knock it down before it gets published. But they don't want to do that because they're on a, a search and destroy mission for the credibility of the news media. I hate the news media, but we have to have a credible news media if we're going to live in a democratic republic. It's good for our country. And to discredit them purely for your own selfish purposes is not presidential and it's not good for the country. All right, uh, that'll do it for hour number one of uh, this podcast. Make sure that you stay tuned to hour number two, 
where our guest will be Cyrus Narasta, the filmmaker on this Oscar day. I, I always ask just two things of you. If you like this podcast, make sure you share it, tell a friend, tweet it, tag me. I'll retweet it, share it on Facebook. Just let people know. Cause that's the only way people will really find out about this podcast. Number two, if you're one of those people who actually sleeps and when you sleep, you use a sheet, do yourself a favor and listen to this important message. My name's John Ziegler, and our website's freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.